Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like sports, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Just like, can you believe that SK is 11-21 and in the Korean Baseball League? They are 14 games out of first place right now. And I did not expect that. Also, update you on the American League East standings. All five teams are tied, 0-0. Zero zero. I love how people put those standings up on websites. I guess technically that's right. So that part wasn't unexpected, but I didn't expect that out of SK to be 10 games under 532 games in. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. We are going to talk to Mitchell Schwartz. And he is a all-pro at tackle. Won a Super Bowl. Should maybe have two Super Bowls. Andy Reid stories, Pat Mahomes stories, nerdy football breakdown stories, recruiting stories. So the whole deal. Uh, he's going to be an awesome guest, so I'm excited about that. So that's what's coming up a little bit later. Quick shout-out, check-in with Kyle. Kyle, where are you at? Same place I've been for the last two months. Home. And I got a weird desk situation. I, I got a, um, a fish tank, and I had to get a new desk because I thought I was going to break through my table. Um, it's a 20 gallon. So I went big and, um, I just, I've been in a weird working position for the last couple of months because my chair and my desk don't really line up. That is all because of the tank. Yeah. Yeah. got to take care of my guys. I don't know what it is about guys in their twenties. Once they get a place, it's like, well, I know what I need now. A tank. I want something <laughs> that I'll probably lose interest in a month later, if not shorter time spirit uh, time period. I need something that's really a pain in the ass to move. Like that's the thing about tanks is when you are most likely to be moving all the time is the age men are more most likely to or more likely to go ahead and buy a tank. I had a massive fish tank with Oscars in it, but luckily it was my roommate, um, my roommate Pete at the time. And Pete, Pete was not he was a good roommate, but he was a bad move in, move out roommate. Because I, when I know I have to move, I'm like, okay, I'm on it. I I hate it too. Everybody like a month moving. out. But no, I just I just start doing this stuff. Not so much then, but like this time around, I'll be like, look, let's get a let's get a room every couple days out of the way. Start packing up the closet. Let's get all the stuff out of the bathroom tomorrow. You know, maybe give it a couple days. Let's let's hit up this room. And so when we lived together, I think at that point I was 22, maybe turning 23. He was about the same age. He had this massive, massive uh, fish tank. And we were moving out of the apartment and they were like, you guys got to get out of here anyway. Cause we asked if we could like extend the lease. Cause we didn't really know what we were doing. We both planned on going our separate ways. And then we didn't, we didn't prepare enough for it. So we screwed up and then we're like, actually, can we re up? And they're like, no, you guys aren't a great fit <laughs> in this community. And so we were like, okay. Um, so I packed up all of my stuff, but back then I don't even really own anything. I mean, depending on who owned the couch or who owned the TV, the rest of the stuff's your bed, your mattress, your clothes, and that's about it, you know. And, and for me, CDs. I always had a lot of CDs. So I packed up all my stuff, and as the moving truck showed up that we rented, actually we just rented it. Like back then, we just rented the truck ourselves and drove it. I packed it all up, and then he started to pack his stuff as I had just put in like the last box of things that I had. Damn. So then that meant he was so behind with it all that I had to help him move, including the massive fish tank. And then after I moved that fish tank at 22, 23, I went, I'm never getting one of these fish tanks. Never. And I wanted one. Yeah. I wanted a saltwater tank. I wanted to do the whole thing. I'm like, this is going to be, look at all my tangs going all over the place. But uh, I'm not doing it. Tang is the right right phrase, right? You a saltwater yes. fish guy? Yeah. 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 Uh, no, I mean, I'd like to be, but I mean, I'm having enough trouble with this thing. I know you'd like to be. You're in your 20s and you have you have an apartment. Of course, you'd like to be a saltwater fish <laughs> guy. Those, those are the rules. All right, let's talk some hoops. Let's talk Orlando bubble. Let's talk as many angles as we possibly can. Let's update you on what some of this means. So we know that all teams will fly down to Orlando, all 22 teams that are involved in the rest of the regular season of the playoffs. All of these 22 teams will fly to Orlando July 7th. And I think when you look at where we thought the timeline would be, because we had talked about this conversation, really the conversation had been under the idea that the NBA had to be done before Labor Day, which was something that was out there and being talked about, but it wasn't some rule. And that's why even with the baseball negotiation, I, I will sit here and I will say, as bad as it looks, as bad as it looks, we don't know until 
you actually have to make these real decisions. And basketball finally was like, okay, yeah, this is an ideal, which is most of this stuff. Um, but we don't need, we don't need need to be done by September 5th or whatever. Like, let's figure this out. So that way, when we started reading these concerns about how quickly could players ramp it back up, you know, 30 days at least. And I'm going, man, that like, so that means you think 45, this stuff was announced at the beginning of June. It's on guys to get in shape now. And then you're going to fly down July 7th. And you're still going to have until the 31st before the regular season games even start. So you think basically the league is doing everything they possibly can to appease players to make sure they're geared up and ready to go. But we also know that everyone's different. And we're talking hundreds of players. Some of them aren't going to be in shape. And that's just the way that it goes. Because some guys are going to say, hey, I like this break. And I don't feel like doing anything. And now I've been off this long. I don't really feel like ramping it back up. And you know what? I'll figure it out. Or hey, my team isn't even that good. So I'm going to be out of shape. There's nothing you can do about that. Guys are going to be out of shape. Now, let's talk about some of the revenue split stuff. If they hadn't played, because I've seen this, why can't you just do the 16 teams? I'm telling you this, and the NBA is telling this, because we they heard from the players saying, well, you don't want to just start right into the playoffs. So yes, 16 teams would be safer than 22. You know, be safer, sim the whole thing, and we'll just have a reveal show on who won a simulation. That'd be the safest, but that's not what's going to happen. Okay, because they're trying to figure out a way to salvage the season and salvage money, and I'm okay with that. Now, if you had canceled the remaining 259 regular season games, the numbers say that that would have been about $645 million in lost salary for the players. I don't want that to happen to the players. The players don't want to have that happen to the players. So with this format where they're going to play these extra regular season games, these buffer games... They're going to save about $300 million on that salary loss, so maybe we're looking at like $350 million in salary loss when it's all said and done. Again, these numbers are loose right now. Those buffer games are going to happen over 16 days, five to six games per day, and they're going to happen before the playoffs. You know what's going to happen? If somebody's going to get hurt, and that's going to be okay. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not ever rooting for anyone's injury, but what I'm saying is that when someone does get injured, because usually every year in the playoffs – we have a significant injury that affects the playoffs to some degree. It happens, and it's probably going to happen now, but it's not happening only because they started up with 22 teams. It's not happening only because they started the season again. It's because athletes get hurt playing sports. And so I am always sympathetic to the injury. I hate injuries in sports, but I'm not going to join that train of criticism where it turns into, well, the injury happened only because of this. No, the injury happened because the injury happened. So if you go those 16 buffer days and all of these games are going to pack into three different arenas, I believe, and then they'll scale that back down. The start date, July 31st, as we mentioned, the latest the season would go would be October 12th. The NBA Finals Game 7 schedule as of right now, that game would land on October 12th. Now, that's 74 days of basketball max. Yes, there's going to be a lot of juggling of sports this fall. Who knows what's going to happen with baseball, football, college football, um, what the start time for hockey would be in all of this. I mean, we are talking some serious juggling, not just for arena availability and, and you know, stadiums are a little bit different because it's not like stadiums are necessarily sharing with anybody else and they can just go one day a week and the college stadiums, not like they're using them really for anything else. But for the NBA, this is why they're doing it in Orlando because it's controlled. It's controlled. We know these are where we're playing all of our games and we're fine and we're good to go. As far as personnel, the number was originally floated in the 20s. Now it looks like it's 35 people per team. So that's 14, 15 players. That's five, seven plus coaches, training staff. That's not enough. Some teams are actually wishing it was more. I don't know how you do that where you keep adding to it more and more because you got to factor in the family part of this where now families are involved and nobody was going to do that argument. Nobody's going to say, actually, family can't come because a lot of the, this, this planning has to sound right. It has to appease a lot of different parties. And that's why Silver is really good at this because I think it's not just him being political. I think it's him genuinely caring about some of these things where he cares about the players. He cares about the coaches. He cares about the players' families and he's not going to misstep. And that's why he's always been like, we don't want to do this or announce this is coming back until we understand more about the virus, until we have more access to testing and we're not taking tests away from just everyday people. That was something the NBA was very worried about. And I think originally the NBA wanted to probably wait until baseball had decided when they were going to come back, but baseball can't figure this stuff out. So 
I would argue there's probably some players that are like, can we leave the families out of this? Is there a way that can be passed? Now, there's a bunch of rapid fire things here where I don't want to sound like I don't care, but these are the things that the NBA had to decide. Okay, yeah, I know. That sucks. That sucks for you. But we're moving forward, and we're trying to figure this out. Trey Young did a really nice piece the other day. He goes, I hate this. I hate that we're done playing. I hate that I can't go play anywhere. I hate that it was 22 teams. I hate that it wasn't all 30 teams. All of it was on point. It sucks that you don't get to play, but your team wasn't any good, so you're not going to be in this group. And you also have the eight teams that are left out asking for some version of some OTA because they're like, we don't want to go 10 months without playing anything that's even close to NBA basketball. And that makes all the sense in the world. But those eight teams are not the priority right now. And I know that sucks for those eight teams, but that's the reality of it. I also think, get ready for this, just like NFL GMs that make mistakes after the draft with all of this weird stuff, and it'll be more so the NFL, you will hear media members say, well, you know, with the coronavirus and all the uncertainty at the time, that's why they missed on this first-round pick. You will have teams going into 2021 where things aren't working out, where they'll go back and be like, well, you know, we didn't play for 10 months, like, or was your team just still bad? So always important to remind yourselves of those things when you hear these pivoting and positioning of people defending stuff that did not work out. Uh, Mello said he doesn't really want to play. No problem with that. Hey, Mello, if you don't want to play, don't play. Same thing with Lillard. Don't be fine. You don't want to play? Go ahead. Don't play. No one is in position to tell anybody that they have to play if they are concerned about their own safety and the safety of their immediate family. Like, who are any of us? And certainly the NBA wasn't going to punish any of these guys. And that's another thing, too. It's like punishment. Again, this obsession with other people's punishment that constantly happens in this country where it's like, oh, well, at least in sports. It's like, wait a minute, three games? No way. It should be four games. Like, yeah, four. Four is way better. Yeah, three just, three doesn't make any sense. He should be suspended four games. Like, yeah, four. No one should be uh, suspended or punished. Now they're saying you're not going to get paid either. I would wonder if Mello were on a team that were two seed or projected two seed, if he would feel differently about this. I imagine he would. But if he doesn't want to play, I'm not going to say that he should. And that's fine. And the NBA shouldn't say that he should. Uh, the age thing with coaches. This one's been all over the place where because I think Silver wanted to say the right thing where he goes, yeah, we have to worry about some of our older coaches. There are head coaches that are over 70 years old, a bunch of head coaches that are over 60 years old. The more we know about this virus, the more we realize the numbers are heavily skewed towards older people that have, that have suffered from this. But when you start to say that kind of stuff, then there was some pushback. And then it's already been kind of walked back a little bit where it's like, well, of course we love our coaches and, and we'll make sure that everybody's good to go because Silver can't really win on that one. And that kind of leads into the well, actually, guys, because there's going to be an army of well, actually people marching and they are on the crest right now, peering down and they have a great vantage point. But, you know, as I was reading the other day, my Panama Canal book, pessimists are often on the sidelines. So. The magic part of this, I love because people were like, wait a minute, the Orlando magic. Why do they have to go to the bubble? They live there. Can't they just stay at home? That's the whole point of the bubble, folks. That's the whole point, because all of this has to be a controlled environment with constant testing and a limited number of people, even though it still feels like they're going to be more people than you originally thought. So sorry, magic fans, no home court advantage for this one is sleeping in your own bed. A storyline that may have not been talked about. I don't know if I'm the first one to mention this. Did the coronavirus fix tanking? I haven't seen that headline anywhere else because you have the worst teams. Hey, we're not even going to have to watch your games where, you know, Philly wins for a month straight because they're playing everybody that's tanking two years ago or Gerald Green has 30 a game because everybody else has checked out. The April Fool season of the NBA that tricks us into thinking some things, well, I guess we're not really ever going to get to see that because I don't know what to make of what we're about to see once this starts up July 31st. But I'm not saying it fixed tanking. It's it's altered what kind of version of tanking that we would see. And finally, I want to end on this because I am I don't want to make it sound like I'm selfishly happy because certainly, yes, I'm selfishly happy there'll be basketball back. I'm happy that Adam Silver decided with ownership and with players that everybody is on the same page where they're giving this a shot. And as I've said throughout all of this virus stuff, whether I was on with Bill or doing something here, and I, you know, the longer I would go on it, like, just shut up. I can read any piece from respected places, from people that I've been reading, 
and go, oh, wow. And I can come to a conclusion that completely opposes a conclusion written by somebody else that's very convincing. And I don't know what's going to happen. Almost every one of you, I would say all of you listening right now, don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes when I look at the stock market and you're like, oh, it's gone up because they have better information than the public. And that means they know there's no second wave. And then you see on a Thursday, the stock market getting wiped out, just gains wiped out off of this rally. And you go, does that mean they know something? I mean, it's a normal conversation for people that follow this kind of stuff, but I don't know. And that's the whole point is that I've the whole time wondered if it was overblown, wondered if this is the wrong thing to, to shut down the country. But then I've also thought, what if that second wave comes and all of these leagues are ramping up again and things are looser and looser and people are in restaurants and you look at some of these numbers out of Arizona and you go, wait a minute, what does that mean? Is the second wave coming? I don't know. I don't know. And that's, that's really, I'll end on this. It's, I've been more than willing for months to say, I don't know. I'm just surprised how many of you are convinced you know. Congratulations to Way Down in the Hole, the Wire podcast, which I uh, love because I love the show, Van Lathan and Jamel Hill. What was that name? Top 100 new podcast by time. So shout out to them. Um, and you got Kevin Clark and Danny Kelly on the NFL show as, uh, you know, more and more people are trying to figure out what the hell that league's going to do. And we'll be doing probably more and more basketball as we get closer to this. So let's talk some football, though. He's an all-pro, he's a Super Bowl winner, and he's a tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. It's Mitchell Schwartz. So what's this been like for you? I, I realize that there's a version of camp that you would have been in. You'd be gearing up you know, a month from now for camp again. So football's in a different spot because baseball's trying to figure out the finances. Basketball's trying to figure out the safety. And you guys are kind of just hanging in the background. So how different has this process been for you? Yeah, it's been a little bit weird during this OTA period to not be in the facility, to not have to, you know, drive in to go to meetings, have the practice. As an older guy, I'm kind of digging it. Um, I'm able to stay at home. You know, I had to find some home gym equipment because I tried the body weight circuit thing for like a week and got burnt out after two days. So uh, I realized I needed to get some some real equipment. So I got some lifting stuff, got a rack, got some dumbbells. So I'm able to basically do everything physically at home that I would be doing there. Um, the virtual meetings honestly are kind of cool. It's not too bad. We're covering all the same stuff we normally would. It's just you don't necessarily get to you know see people every day, and it's a little bit weird for you know when coaches are talking and they can't see us, so they throw out one-liners and jokes, and they're not able to, to see our reaction. So they kind of just have to assume that all their jokes landed. Yeah, and for those that don't know, Mitchell's been really nice to me over the years. Uh, it always means a lot to me whenever it's a player or a coach or a front office guy shooting me a note saying, hey, you know, I like what you did here because I, I know there's so many times we just don't know what's going on. But the biggest hookup was that Mitchell hooked me up with uh, a guy who had made all these dumbbells and they had extra ones. And it was for Byron Nelson High School. And I was kind of excited to like get a couple of them. But then all this other stuff came through. So I, I'm with you on that because at first I was running the staircases in my house going, this is great. And then I think I messed up my foot permanently from that. Um, are guys working out? Is every, like everybody says that they do or cause with basketball, like some guys are just going to be out of shape. It's hundreds of guys with you. It's, it's over a thousand guys in your league. And I'm just wondering, do you think everyone is, is going at this the same way? Or if some guys are looking at it, like I'll get back to work when I know I'm getting back to work. I'm sure there's an element where guys were kind of taking a couple extra months to get back into it um you know training camp and especially with the nfl i mean the day you show up you do a conditioning test so uh you know that's happening you know that you know you're gonna have practice you know right off the bat so i think guys will get to shape by training camp i'm not sure of uh you know how how good april and may look for some of them but i would like to think people are taking it serious i mean it, it's been hard to find gyms you know gyms have been closed down for a while um the facility was open for about a week after covid happened and then you know, between the, the NFL and the PA, they shut that down. And that uh, was tougher for some people. So I think guys are finding it. They're figuring out ways, you know, the, the strength staff has been good about having a couple of different plans based on how much equipment you have. And so I know the PA and the NFL are also talking about kind of that ramp up period and needing to make sure that things are happening safely. You know, you worry about the Achilles stuff, the change of direction. Um, but I think for the most part, it seems like guys have found a place to work out, whether it's what they're used to, whether it's, like you said, running stairs, I tried doing step ups on the stairs outside and it's just such a weird angle. So I, I nixed that like right away. They O linemen, I would put up there with any, any group that you'd want to hang out with. Um, you are, you are guys, your, your job is to protect 
So I think you, you make good friends. I think you guys are loyal people because the job like has this weird thing because there's no glory in it. You're really good at it. But does are there moments where you're like, this sucks? It sucks being an offensive lineman. Yeah, the majority of my life. Uh, most <laughs> Sunday mornings, my brother and I used to text each other like, hey, why, why are we doing this? This, this is terrible. Um, it's just, it's stressful, man. Like your job is protecting, I mean, literally protecting the MVP of the league last year. Um, you know, every play, my job is to protect Pat Mahomes or, you know, Damian, we saw what he did in the Super Bowl. I mean, you have such a higher level responsibility than pretty much any other position. I mean, a receiver drops a pass, I'll get the next one. You know, a DB gives up a, a big player, misses a tackle, I'll get the next one. I mean, I don't block Von Miller. He destroys Pat. There's no, oh, I'll get you next time. You know, it's, oh my God, like, hopefully you're okay. Hopefully everything's all right. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a way higher level of stress. And I think that's something we kind of bond together. Like you said, it, it makes us, you know, kind of dependable and reliable uh, in a way that not everyone else uh, is or has to be. Who's the worst to go up against for you? Vaughn's incredible. I mean, Khalil Mack, I was pretty happy when he got traded away. Um, really, I mean, the AFC West has just been just an insane, I mean, Bosa and Ingram. Um, you know, the, the, the weird thing is all these guys have like every pass rush move available. I mean, the guys who are good, you know, it's, it's very rare to have a guy who just does one thing and that's what he's really good at. I mean, everyone remembers like Dwight Freeney, the spin move. But the spin move only worked because he was insanely quick and he could also bull rush you into oblivion. And so you're worried about those two things and he, he feels that he hits the spin move. Um, guys who are one-trick ponies, they don't seem to exist anymore. So, I mean, Vaughn, when he was young, he was, you know, the fastest guy I'd ever seen. And then he added a bunch of strength since then. So now he can power you into the quarterback, uh, you know, in a way that a guy that, that size shouldn't be able to. So um, I'd say just the AFC West, I mean, having to play those guys six times a year. Um you know, not, not necessarily the, the best place to sign it to, but uh, it's been a lot of fun and obviously made me better. I've talked about this, about Vaughn, and I even mentioned to him once that I think he has some weird hip, torso, leg ratio thing that's not normal, where if you really like study the measurements on him, that I've never seen a guy that's that big, that quick, but then also can get almost parallel to the ground and then come back up. Like he can get underneath guys at this angle that doesn't seem human it would look like everybody else would just fall down so i've i've asked other people about it i don't i'm not trying to be some sort of physiologist here but it's just it's different with him and i i can't imagine what it'd be like to try to block him well there's the element that he can just do that at pretty much any time but he's also learned how to use that to his advantage you know those guys have their pass rush summit thing and he's kind of taught that and you know i've seen people refer to it as like a ghost technique where essentially he makes it seem like he's there and then he just dips under you and he not there um you know he's gotten me a few times with it it's, it's weird it kind of it's almost lulls you to sleep a little bit because everything just kind of appears the same and then that move comes out of nowhere and like you said i mean he's a foot or two off the ground um and then at that point i mean you're honestly you're kind of pushing his momentum like towards the quarterback because if you're pushing him down and he's going at that direction you know you're kind of propelling him into where he wants to go so it's it's insane i mean uh, you know, credit to him for some really good genetics there. And I'm sure he works at his flexibility too. So why did you sign there after four years in Cleveland? Well, I got a lot of mm -hmm. advice to get out and go somewhere else. You know, I love Cleveland. Um, you know, I had an incredible offensive line room. I mean, Joe Thomas, Alex Mack, John Greco, three guys who were in my wedding. Um, you know, so some of my best friends in life and, you know, we had fun pretty much every day. I mean, the losing sucked and, you know, it's great on you over time. But every day I was excited to go, you know, to the facility because it was just so much fun hanging out with those guys. And that was the only place I knew. I didn't, you know, understand kind of the, the power structure, the, the dynamics, you know, how things could be different and, and should be different. And so I finally, you know, got a chance to, to break free, you know, just knowing Andy Reid and the success he had had in Philly and what he had built in just a few years in Kansas City was huge for me. Uh, my brother had played there for a year uh, for Coach Reed's first year in Kansas City. So I knew, you know, he loved Coach. He loved Coach Heck, who's our offensive line coach. Uh, he loved living in the city. It just kind of fell into place. Uh, you know, it doesn't hurt that it's got great barbecue. As a, as a big food fan, it's uh, a pretty good food place to be as well. That's right. Your uh, Twitter feed is uh, some serious, serious grilling going out back. Yeah, I know I know you're a huge fan of food pictures on social media. So <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell you, there's a few times I'm pretty jealous of what you put together. The homemade pizzas look really good for 
no offense, like an offensive lineman from California cooking pizzas in the Midwest, like they almost look edible. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I don't even have to stand outside in the 100-degree heat and 90% humidity to make it. <laughs> this California pizza thing is really, it's its freaked me out. I People told me, they gave me a heads up. They said, it's its not going to be what you what you think it's going to be. And I was like, well, I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it's just, there's a lot of misses. There's a lot of misses out here. And yeah, I'm not living that far yeah. from where you grew up, right? Right. I grew up basically where the four or five and the 10 meet in uh, West LA, Santa Monica area. So we grew up going to CPK. So that was <laughs> kind of what I knew of pizza growing up and uh, Sparrow at the West Side Pavilion. So uh, good New York was, slice right my, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now your pizzas look terrific. So I feel like now you think I'm beating up on you a little bit. Um, let's talk about your brother, Jeff, real quick. He's a little bit older, as you mentioned, play. I did some TV shows. What's the best part of having an older brother who's never wrong about anything? Well, I uh, got to learn from his mistakes, so that was always good. Uh, he was kind of the guinea pig for everything, so we learned uh, how to do things correctly. I mean, even you know, from the football world, going back to recruiting, you know, coming out of high school. I mean, no one freaking knows how to get recruited coming out, so my parents were able to learn from that process, and uh, I would kind of tag along, and everyone's like, "Oh, you, you're pretty big at 17, but who's this, you know, kind of lanky, tall kid over here at 14 who's already huge?" So I got on people's radars. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, going back to, you know, texting on game day mornings uh, at this point when he's able to watch my games now, uh, the only two texts are either you did this thing that was really awesome. Good job. Or, hey, this play, you sucked. Uh, wasn't that funny? Like, there's no in between. There's no like, hey, that was a pretty good game. You know, you missed a couple things here because, I mean, he knows that I know. But the stuff that's either really bad or, or really good, uh, that's the stuff we'll, we'll talk about. So I'm usually able to relive my worst moments directly after the game. And yeah, and for those that don't know, like that's part of the shtick is that you know Jeff is never wrong, and so um, and I've I've had you know a few times where, you know, I admit, especially like on coverage stuff, like and I've talked along about this. I'd be like, what kind of adjustments do you make? He goes, dude, all the adjustments on defense are on the back end. Like they're not. They, 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 all of a sudden they don't just start saying, all right, all stunts now. You know, like they don't they don't do that. Yeah. And then the same thing happens with offensive lineman stuff, where I think even though I've watched however many hours of football that I've watched, I mean, never playing O line. Like it's hard to always know what the protections are. It just, it just, it's um, it's yeah, an mean, advanced level of watching. Most people watching have no idea what the protections are. Like, and, and I'm talking about most of us in the media too. So I don't even feel like it's that that odd. Yeah, that's something. I mean, he doesn't. He's done a good job with, like you said, yeah. his pod is called Jeff Schwartz. Jeff Schwartz is smarter than you. So there's obviously some <laughs> some stick there. But on his YouTube, I mean, his his thing is he's trying to teach people the game. And so he went back. He did a lot of stuff. People always like to talk about empty protection which is you know we're just a 5-0 liner block in all the running backs are out and lsu ran a ton of it last year with burrow that was one of the things that really made them go and so jeff has you know shown a few clips of that and kind of broken down the rules people always love to scream at the o-line when there's a free rusher that hits the quarterback or gets to the quarterback but a lot of the times you know it's kind of planned the quarterback knows that he's able to drift away from it you know throw it to in this case i mean uh, Clyde Hilaire is now going to be on my team and watch him throw a couple spin moves and go score a touchdown. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, that's something I enjoy, too, is the teaching aspect. Um, you know, a lot of people like to know more about football. I mean, it's so intricate that it just uh, seems like there's constant need for, you know, kind of teaching. How weird was that in the recruiting path for you? Because you ended up at Cal, but you, um, you know, to have your brother go through it, play at a big-time school himself, uh, there has to be something in there where it's like, okay, could, I mean, did you ever have a moment where you thought you were going to go somewhere else or or how much the, the experience of being able to see it firsthand, your brother going through it, knowing exactly like maybe you were a little more tuned in knowing what you would want? Yeah, I actually started out really liking Stanford. Um, I was also the year they went like one in 11 and lost to Davis and fired their coach and then hired Har Harbaugh like that December and I'd already committed to Cal. So that one uh, kind of quickly fell off. Um, it came down to essentially Cal and Virginia. Um, you know, my parents really pushed the academic part of it. Um, Tennessee was recruiting me and offered me and they were just like, Hey, you got into Stanford. You're not going to Tennessee. So might as well just pass that one off. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is a very SEC friendly podcast. So I don't know what you're saying about the admission rates at Tennessee, but if you want to retract that, you can. <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, it's something, I mean, they were real about it. I mean, we all get told the stats. We see those you know, kind of NCAA things, you know, only one out of 4 million are going to make it to the NCAA and then one out of however many. So they wanted me to have a degree from, you know, one of the top you know, yeah. schools. 
Um, obviously Stanford being one of the top private schools and then Cal has been the top public school for like 10 or 15 years, however long that's been. So that was really important for me too. I mean, it's something that I just kind of, like you said, followed in my brother's path. I mean, he got recruited. I just figured I was going to get recruited. He went to the NFL. I figured I was going to go to the NFL, but you always want to, you know, kind of have a safety net. And so the academics were there and I, I didn't really want to go to Oregon. I didn't want to be Jeff's little brother my whole career. I mean, I, I had that a little bit in high school. Um, but I just kind of want to do my own thing. So Oregon was always there, but realistically it was kind of Stanford, Cal, Virginia, Stanford fell off. It was Cal and Virginia. And then if they had switched coast, I'd probably end up with Virginia. It was just uh, a little bit too far away to go. Um, literally across the coast. So your playoff run was incredible this year. And I don't know how much, you know, just like we were talking about, like some of the grading system, Whenever something comes along, it's like, okay, this is how these guys are getting graded out. And then people will point out, be like, well, that's not even him. So that grade's not even right. You graded out as what? The best offensive lineman in the playoffs? By some media. Like, it, that's got to be the best version ever of searching your own mentions. So uh, are you, like, do you look at yourself? Do you think of yourself as, I don't know, the best tackle, but one of the however many best tackles in the league? Yeah, at this point, I think I'm one of the best. I, I've always... I've never necessarily thought I was like the best, um, you know, just cause I'd say I'm pessimistic by nature. So I'm always kind of looking to to do better and, you know, hold myself to a very high standard. I think, you know, like you said, I mean, it was pro football focus. They said I had the single best postseason of any player, not just O-line. Well I like how you corrected it. While we're doing it. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as well, we're talking about it. You brought it up. Um, but no, it's, uh, it's obviously really cool. I mean, I think that's the thing with pro football focus. I mean, they've always graded me well, so I like them. Um, I think that's kind of how it goes as players. The guys who don't get graded well hate them. The guys who get graded well like it. But the idea is more, you're not necessarily looking at it on the per play basis. It's more just like, oh, this guy had a good season. They rank him in the top five. Um, that seems like he deserves it or something's weird. Maybe let me go watch the film and see if I agree. And so I definitely get helped out by our offense. I mean, we run RPO stuff. I'm on the backside of those and I just get to kind of pass block and Pat throws a slant over my head. I mean, that counts as a pass pro win. That doesn't really feel like I'm doing that, that difficult of a job. Um, we did have some, I mean, we were down in every game. So there are some points where we did have to throw the ball, but I got helped out with chips and formation stuff that coach did. I mean, we played Houston, you know, you focused on JJ Watt and had to you know, make sure he's not taking over the game. Um, you play San Francisco with those guys, you really focus on, you know, their defensive ends and how do we influence them? So yeah, I'm definitely helped out with a bunch of stuff, but I'm not going to turn down a, a pretty awesome stat either. Yeah, that's right. You graded out. Um, maybe the best ever. Would you be afraid to answer a JJ Watt question? Honestly, if, if I asked you <laughs> where you think he was at coming back, I mean, look, he's dealt with a ton of injuries. He's probably been at his peak. One of the most disruptive players I've ever seen. And I think for JJ, it's tough to figure out if, are we seeing any decline physically? Are we seeing a scheme that makes sure that he can't ruin what you're trying to do? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think he was in the same football shape. I think he'd probably admit that. I mean, you saw in that Buffalo game, he was on the sidelines. I mean, um, looking, you know, pretty tired. There's a thing where you can work out as much as you want. And I know he's, you know, if not the hardest working guy in the NFL, he's, you can work out as much as you want on your own. There's just no substitute for NFL football. Um, that's something that you realize during training camp. I mean, you think you come into camp in great shape and two days later you feel absolutely awful and you're like, man, I just did all this stuff. And why do I feel this way? It's just football shape is different. And so I didn't know guys could come back from his injury that quickly. Um, you know, in, in the first half of the Buffalo game, it looked like he was you know, maybe favoring it or, you know, natural tendency to think, Hey, you know, my shoulder or whatever that was, uh, is a little, um, you know, gimpy or, um, what have you, you know, in the second half, he started to feel it a little bit more and you could see, I mean, he was using it to swat and club guys. Um, and so by the end of it, he looked like he regained full trust. Um, but I think there's always the element of, you know, not being in complete football shape and it's just tough. He was also, you know, playing a different role. He, uh, for the most part was kind of coming in on, on the pass downs, you know, in our game, there was, you know, for the most part, he wasn't in on those first and second downs, you know, kind of run down play action downs he would come in as a pass rusher. And so for a guy who's always on the field, it's really weird to come out and only be able to play, you know, a snap at a time, come back off. And so it's a combination of, you know, the physical stuff and also just being in a different role. It's just really uncomfortable. And, you know, he's really good at timing up the snap count too. So not being on the field, not being able to hear all the rhythms and, and do all those things. Uh, I think that's also, you know, a, a bit of a detriment for a guy like him. 
Let's go back to the AFC title game loss at home against New England and knowing that it's an offsides flag away from you guys, you know, maybe winning the first Super Bowl because I would have thought you were going to, you know, look, I just I just think that much of your team, I think that much of Mahomes, and that's why I wasn't surprised to see you guys win the Super Bowl this year. But let's compare those two nights. What was that night like realizing that you guys probably missed out on a chance to win it? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, the locker room after the game in particular, you know, everyone was pretty devastated. Um, you know, I know at least on the offensive side of the ball, you don't like to split it up, you know, offense versus defense, but like, I'm pretty sure we scored zero points in the first half. So, you know, we left thinking, man, we left a lot on the field. Um, obviously New England's, you know, historic defense and, and the stuff they did in that playoff run, but you just feel like you kind of let the team down, you know, not, not providing anything in the first half. And so there's a frustration there. There's a disappointment. Um, you know, I, I knew going into the next year, I, I thought we'd be pretty good because, you know, Pat and all the guys were coming back. But in the moment, it just it, it kills you. And knowing, you know, what could have been if, if you had done your part better, um, just really frustrating. And, you know, by the time the Super Bowl got played, I was thought I was mostly over. It, and then I was watching and it ended up being that really low scoring game and you know, kind of a quote unquote ugly football game from the outsider perspective. And at that point, you're like, man, we, we could be playing. I think the game would be going a lot differently. Um, they had beat us earlier in the season in that crazy, you know, 54, 51 Monday night game. So they, they did have the leg up there, but yeah, watching the Super Bowl, um, you know, I thought I was kind of over it and moved past it and ready for the next year, but it was, uh, that was pretty tough and I didn't expect it to be. What did New England, can you give us a nerdy answer on that? What did they do to you guys defensively to, to limit you so much in that first half? Well, the big thing is, I mean, we've seen their kind of tree they've gone to the man coverage scheme uh, really heavily and doing a lot of you know press coverage and um you know kind of what seattle did in in the middle of the decade just being extremely physical and you know kind of forcing um refs to, to throw flags and just being handsy and so if you're able to get on guys early and maybe it takes an extra half second to get open late they combine that with their their front five doing all those stunts and twists and uh causing disruption and they were doing it with you know, Van Noy and Hightower, who were uh, really good at, at doing that for linebackers. And so it was a combination of playing really tight coverage and making receivers uncomfortable, um, which, you know, led them to also allow the pass rush up front to get home. You know, we went into that game as an offensive line. You know, we got to stop stunts. We got to stop twists. We have to do this. This is what they're making their money on. And we didn't do it. I mean, that was our emphasis all week. And they're still so good that um, they're able to get home to Pat before the receivers were getting free. And so, that's one of those things, everything, you know, kind of goes in tandem. Um, and that's something that going into this past year, that was something we really worked on because we we're going to face, you know, a lot of the, the Belichick tree uh, man coverage style defenses. So how different was it, obviously, winning versus losing that game? <laughs> but it's I think it's a different feeling, though, when you're that close and it's kind of this lingering disappointment that that's hard to get over. I mean, the team... You know, it wasn't the same run because Pat misses some time. And then you have these ridiculous playoff games, including the, the the big comeback, where I remember just watching that game being like, I don't think I'm shocked that they're going to come back. Like, I just think you guys are different. I think you're like the Warriors down 20 in a basketball game where you just go, all right, let's see what's going to happen. What's the best memory then from winning that that night and kind of just the redemption of a year later? It's almost a sense of relief in a, in a weird way, just because, you know, we went that far. Um you know, I remember sitting there in the fourth quarter, we're down 10, just thinking like, man, this would suck if we don't win. I mean, you, you go this far, you play all these extra games, you do all this stuff the couple of weeks before the Super Bowl, and, you know, to show up and lose a game that's that important, uh, I was just like, this is going to be terrible. So we ended up winning, so there's definitely like that relief of, hey, we did it. Um, then it turned to excitement, and you're just uh, happy to be together. I mean, my honestly biggest memory is being on the bus after the game, going back to the hotel. And, you know, players, coaches, all singing together, all happy. Uh, you know, usually we're pretty respectful and, and keep it quiet. Um, not on that bus. Uh, you know, so it's just a really special moment to be able to celebrate. You know, the weird thing about the Super Bowl is we didn't really get together as a team in the locker room after the game because there's so much going on. Yeah, I know. There's, uh, you know, first you do all the stuff on stage and then there's 400 media people that somehow get access to the field. So you get pulled in all these different directions. Um, you're doing interviews after, and then from there you go to the media tent and there's, you know, the tent set up for, you know, 10 or 12 guys. 
And so people are being pulled in every single direction that there's no singular point where it's just like, all right, the whole team's going to get back to the locker room at X time and we're going to see each other and, you know, be all together. Uh, so that bus ride back was kind of that moment for me where you were really able to you know, kind of celebrate together with, um, you know, some of the players, some of the coaches. And um, I think that's, you know, going to be kind of the overriding feeling for me is just remembering that moment. What's Pat like? He is, I think, exactly what you think he's like, um, which is really odd to be, you know, that good and that successful and have that much success this young and still be pretty grounded. Um, you know, he's just one of the guys. He's obviously, I think, his youth helps him there. Um, you know, being able to just be relatable to everybody. It just, I'm still amazed. I mean, people said, you know, after the MVP year, hey, has he changed? Is anything different? Um, you know, he's the most competitive dude I've ever met. So he always wants to be better, always looking to, to be better. Um, and so that's something that I think you never have to worry about him. Um, you know, obviously he's going to sign a massive extension, you know, I'd imagine before the season, but who knows there. Um, and that's not going to change him. You know, he's already on every national commercial anyway, so he's got plenty of that. Um, so yeah, he's just a genuine person. He, he cares about his teammates. He cares about winning. He's really fun to be around. He's, uh, you know, pretty good with one-liners during meetings and, um, you know, making jokes and things of that nature. So, I mean, he's, you know, a special dude all the way around and, you know, not something that uh, I necessarily knew about him or, you know, you kind of worry about that for that much success at, at that age. I had heard stories, um, and Kevin Clark was on this, you know, who's our, one of our football guys at the ringer, where when he was talking to front office people at Kansas City, when, when Pat was, you know, they draft him, and he's going to be the backup behind Alex, and the people were saying, like, this guy might be the best quarterback in the league. <laughs> like, wait, like, were there moments, there had to have been these moments when you guys were practicing, when he would get reps, where you're freaking out a little bit. There has to have been, right? Yeah, so I was always skeptical of that um, because there's no pressure. I mean, yeah, it's practice, but like he was the backup. Alex was a starter. He was on scout team. And so you're kind of just having fun. Um, you know, if the defense picks you off on scout team, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, so, you know, you didn't really get to see it in live action. Um, and that's the thing that, you know, you can make all these crazy throws. That was the thing coming out of college that, you know, he was kind of downgraded for was he took too many risks. and you know, looking back now, you realize he did that because they were also giving up 65 points a game and you know, exactly. had to, to score that, that many. Was, that was my thing is I couldn't believe the throws he made. And so I was like, well, he's going to have to figure these things out. And what I didn't realize is that he was that smart because they didn't stop anyone that whole time. So it's, I mean, it, the way you described it is perfect. I'm glad you said it because maybe people believe me. Yeah. So that was, I mean, a literal conscious effort by him in college. And, you know, people just kind of assumed as a college kid, you're taking these risks you don't need to. But he was making those choices during the play hey, we need this, and it's worth the risk for me. So I got to play with him his first year, that, that Week 17 game that, you know, all the other starters got to sit out. Um, you know, I got to play for my streak. But um, being able to go to Denver, I mean, they were out of the playoffs, but it's still in Denver Week 17. And I think the thing that impressed me the most was we had no procedural penalties, so no false starts, no delay of games. Typically with a young quarterback, especially making his first start on the road in a place like that, you know, a lot of uh, delay of game stuff, whether it's, taking long to call the play in the huddle, taking too much time to line of scrimmage, you know, got to figure out the silent count. We had none of that. And then, you know, typical Pat fashion, I think we were, we were tied at the end and he marches down the field on the field goal range. Uh, he did throw a pass to our tight end that uh, was a, a Pat pass. And I went up to him like, dude, you know, just make sure you're, uh, you're being smart with the ball. And I think, you know, he was probably like, I, I got this man. But, you know, looking back now, you realize, you know, he's just always in control and he's always got a sense of, you know, where he can put a ball. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it was that game that really cemented, like, hey, we got something here. Um, you know, I'm excited for the next year. What's your favorite Mahomes story, though? What do you tell your buddies? What do you tell your brother? So after, it's probably after the Super Bowl, um, you know, we were around the office, you know, you typically have exit meetings. And so you're waiting, everyone, you get. 50 plus guys who are waiting to talk to, you know, coach Reed and all the coaches. And so we were hanging out and we were in uh, the coach's office and we were talking about the play and, you know, the, the two jet wasp thing kind of took on a life of its own. And I didn't realize at the time how crazy it was. Um, you know, you realize that the next day and, you know, he threw the ball 60 yards plus in the air. I mean, it was whatever it was completion, you know, 40 plus yard completion. And as we know, he was like 14 yards behind the line of scrimmage when he threw it. 
And so I just recently seen the replay and he got hit as he threw it. So he was flat footed, throwing it kind of across his body, 60 yards downfield. I was like, dude, I did not realize you did that. I mean, that's an insane throw. And he just kind of looked at me, like gave me that look like, yeah, I know. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, like he, I mean, that's going back. I mean, he knows how good he is. He's very confident in his ability. He doesn't really outwardly show it. He doesn't come off cocky or arrogant, but it was one of those moments like, yeah, dude, I know. Um, it was just kind of cool to, to see that because he's not uh, typically, you know, letting his guard down like that. And um, I think that that's kind of another defining moment that just, it, it's so cool to see a guy who's that in control of any situation, just be like, yeah, I know how cool that was. Um, I'm glad people are finally seeing it. <laughs> Did he start throwing the no look things because the first one blew up and he was like, all right, I want to get a couple more of these. <laughs> There's an element of that for sure. <laughs> um, we had a play, it might've been the first game of the year in Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, Kelsey's open right there. I think he's rolling left and he can kind of just dump it off to Kelsey. And I think he like looks up to the pool to, you know, try to make it seem like he's looking into the, the pool there in Jacksonville and throws it to him. And it's like 15 feet too high. <laughs> You're like, were you throwing to someone in like the back of the end zone? And there's no one there. Uh, that was, you know, when no look passes go wrong. But yeah, there's an element to it. I mean, he's talked about, he practices that stuff. I mean, he wants to be able to do it in games that, can't imagine being a defender trying to deal with that. How did, I mean, how in the world do you deal with that? And Mahomes, the past uh, couple of weeks, is really stepped up part of the NFL video with players uh, talking about racial inequality. And he's also made some really, really great statements about everything that's been going on the last couple of weeks. What does that mean to uh, a locker room when you have the kind of leader that Pat is? Yeah, that's awesome. And I know, you know, he's doing a lot more stuff behind the scenes where, like you said, he's learning, he's figuring out kind of the best avenue to use his power to to help for good, for change. You know, he's been around sports locker rooms where, you know, some guys have gotten in trouble for saying it, but, you know, for the most part, sports locker rooms are very diverse. Everyone just, you know, kind of treats each other the same. You're all, you know, bonded together for a common goal. And so, you know, he's kind of always had that mindset when he thinks about things. And so I don't think, um, you know, he like all of us, I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine that it's this bad. And so that's the biggest takeaway for me over the past couple of weeks is realizing, you know, exactly how bad it is, listening to everyone's stories. I mean, even just kind of simple things in the workplace where you think, um, you know, hey, that, that wasn't too bad. I mean, there's just so much stuff that's going on. And so having a guy like Pat being able to learn, you know, use his power the right way, it's uh, it's pretty incredible to watch. And I'm excited to see what he's going to do. And, you know, we're all, we all got his back. So whatever he uh, comes up with, I know, you know, Tyron's working on some voting registration stuff as well. And, you know, the quote, you know, trying to make voting cool. Um, you know, that, that stuff's awesome. I mean, you got the leader of the team and then the leader of the defense, who's also the leader of the team, you know, two guys out front uh, working to better the country. And I'm excited to, you know, be part of whatever they, they come up with for us and um, lend my hand in, in whatever way they need. Yeah, it's a good point on, on Tyron, too, because he's been a big part of um, a lot of stuff that's going on the last couple of weeks. Okay. It's time for five questions. Who's actually, I mean, I think we all know the answer here, but I, I'm just, is who's the fastest that's, see, I, I feel stupid saying, is the fastest the guy we think it's the fastest? Because you have so many guys that are so fast on this team, but I don't know yeah. if there's a difference between 40 fast and ball and hand fast. Well, that's what I tell people is he is both, 40 fast ball and hand fast and insanely quick too. He's got Tyreek, change of right? direction. Right. Yeah. Tyreek. Yeah. He's got change of direction. He's got ability to get up to speed and he's got long speed. He's got all three of those. And he just, he destroys angles like you've never seen. Okay. Uh, do you believe that Tyreek has 1% body fat? You know, weirdly I can believe it. Uh, you know, some of those bod pod numbers, it seems like, you know, I know we talked about the two and a half percent and you'd, you'd be dead if, if that was the case, but there's a 3% margin of error in the VOD pod. So, um, yeah, some of these guys, I mean, Alex Smith was crazy lean too. Uh, some of these guys are just like that. Perfect, perfect segue. We'll play the roommate game. Rank the potential roommates. You and this other person, it's cottage. You know, it's maybe it's two bedrooms. I'm not sure. Alex Smith, Mahomes, Andy Reid, or your brother Jeff? Jeff's at the bottom. Uh, however we go there because we would we can only be together for so long before that goes bad um i'd probably go with pat one alex two coach reed three just because there's still the weird coach player thing with coach reed so i 
if there wasn't that weird thing, he'd be number one for me because I think we have the most in common. Um, so maybe post post career, Coach Reed one. Current status, Coach Reed three. Where? Uh, what's your best Andy Reed story? Um, he <laughs> told me about a burrito that either he got John Madden on or John Madden got him on. But it's a chili relleno burrito. <laughs> And you take a chili relleno and I guess you put it in a burrito and add the cheese and the rice and the beans and you turn it into something awesome. And wherever they hang out down in Southern California, there's an awesome place for it. And he, he tried to get the, uh, the facility guys to make him that at, uh, at Arrowhead. And it's just uh, not quite the same, but his, uh, he pulled that out and he was like, hey, you ever had a chili relleno burrito? And that blew my mind. And I, I thought I knew food. You know what? We're ending on that because the rule with five questions is we don't want to always get to all five. So um, that was awesome. That was terrific. Uh, you want to check out Mitchell Schwartz, you can follow him at Mitch Schwartz 71. And uh, this was a lot of fun, man. I, I really appreciate the time. I'm glad we got the chance to kind of hang out and talk a little bit. And there's a, a former offensive lineman who's my neighbor, like the next block over. And he's big for big guys. And people like are like, have you met? The guy, you know, like, hey, you're in sports. I'm like, no, I've seen him around because, I mean, he's he, if he didn't play football, you'd be like, what happened? And they're like, no, he played O-line. But I can't figure out who he is, so we're trying to get to the bottom of this. So I may need to call you back. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Had a lot of fun, and I appreciate it. Coming up this Sunday, Bill and I will be doing the 2007 redraftables. I am fired up for the redraftables. We'll do some other stuff on that one. And uh, I'll be back next week. So please subscribe, rate, and review the Rosillo Podcast. Tell your friends. Tell people you hate. Let them know what's up. <laughs>